Amoti lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, amotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Bore Pri Hagafen. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. So as you walk by love, hang your robe down low. Hang your robe down low. Son of David, hear my cry. Son of David, hear my cry. I cannot be silent. My Savior's walking by. So I Oh 
So I cry as you Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. If you would, turn in your Bibles uh, to Genesis chapter 6. Um, this is the second portion of our teaching in Genesis. It's about the story of Noah. In fact, the Torah portion is entitled Noah, which means rest. Um, before I get into the actual teaching of it, I need to share just a bit of testimony that does relate to what we're going to find in this portion. Um, if you've heard my long-term testimony when I first became Messianic, um, one of the, this Torah portion played a very significant role in my young life, in that um, I used to, as a younger man, I was in aerospace engineering, I was a logistics engineer. Uh, my specialties was in technical training and technical documentation, and, and uh, the particular company I was working for was uh, a company called Aerojet Electrosystems based out of California. And um, my bo the boss's boss's boss of there was, um, his name was Jerry Starr. He was the international president of the Society of Logistics Engineers. And so if you were going to work in that company and you were going to work where I was working at, you were going to join this professional society, the Society of Logistics Engineers, SOL, um, or else you didn't have a career you know, there with those guys uh, since our senior boss was the international president of the organization. 
Um, one of the things we used to do was each month in the professional chapter that we had in the community was we would have a guest speaker come in and we'd invite our wives and we'd have dinner one night and we'd have this speaker come in and it was usually some boring subject that only engineers could like. Some colonel or some general or something would be invited to the dinner to speak and, and the wives were always bored half out of their mind, you know, going these. In fact, it became kind of common. Wives didn't come. It was just us guys that would go to these dinners. Um, and I was, I had been put on the list as what they call kind of a backup speaker, that in case the main dinner speaker fell through and he couldn't make it, that I could be contacted and I could be asked to fill in, you know, in case. Well, sure enough, that, that happened finally. Um, the colonel that was supposed to come and be our dinner speaker, he had some change of plans. He couldn't make it. So I got called by the chapter president if I would, you know, prepare something to be the dinner speaker for one of these dinners. And it was literally a whim. Uh, I think I look back on it now, I believe it was really the spirit of the Lord that did it. But I threw out the suggestion, what about a logistics engineering analysis on the design and the production of Noah's Ark. And the idea I was thinking about was something that might be of interest for women, wives to come to, uh, that might be something that would catch their attention. And they immediately accepted the idea, so I proceeded in the course of the next two weeks on my own time, I proceeded to put together a logistics engineering analysis on the story of the design of Noah's Ark. And in this portion, you're going to hear God specify to Noah certain parameters about how to build this ark to go through the flood. And, and uh, there's clues about how the, what the world was like before the flood, and then there's clues about what happened during the flood, and then there's evidence after the flood, you know, kind of what the world is we have today. And there's this process if you will, in, in telling this story. Well, engineers love process. And so I proceeded to treat this Torah portion and what is given as instructions from the Lord as though it was a government specification. The government is telling the contractor what I want you to build and how I want it to perform. And so God is telling Noah, I want you to build an ark. It's going to be this size. This is what you'll put in it. This is what it will do. And this is what it's going to accomplish. So treating it just like, you know, in those days, we used to do analysis for the Air Force on them building new satellites. By the way, when you send a satellite up into space, it better work. And the analysis that you do down here on the ground before you ever launch it up there is what determines whether or not you believe it's going to work. And so that was the kind of job that we were doing. We were trying to understand uh, the design the government was calling for and trying to make sure that before we ever launched it that it would work. Well, Noah's in the same situation. He has to build this ark, and he doesn't get to go back and fix it if he didn't build it correctly after the flood starts. I mean, it's better work. Uh, it has to, to do its job. So with all of those parameters, I just went back and did what we normally do. 
as a professional logistics engineer. We did capacity analysis, we did the structural design, we looked at thermodynamics, we looked at ventilation and air, you know, for it, how many creatures were actually on board, um, you know, what food would they have eaten. In other words, all of the parameters to go through this. And as a logistics engineer, we are looking to make two determinations. One, is it feasible? Is this design feasible? Is it possible that it would work? And then more importantly, how probable is it? Is, is, is it probable that it will be successful? And we have a series of numbers and technical parameters that we go through in our analysis to make those determinations. So anyways, I make this, I make this, uh, do this analysis, and I go and I make a, a one-hour slideshow presentation on the results, and, and I do this logistics engineering analysis presentation, which demonstrates what logistics engineers do. All, that's really what I was trying to do. I was trying to show what, how do we work and what are the things we consider and, and how do we build what we call algorithms where we can quantify all of this design uh, on paper down to a mathematical computation to make a determination how probable it is. And probability is a percentage. You know, and what you're looking for is a probability that's in the upper 90%, 95% or greater, um, and we call that the fifth sigma, which means it's highly probable. Well, I do this analysis, and I make this presentation, and when I get done, um, you know, I determined that the story of Noah's Ark, according to engineering principles, was not only feasible, but it was highly probable that it was successful. Um, and, and, um, and I make this sudden conclusion that the, if we can go back into this ancient story, which by the way, most critics of the Bible mock this story. They just see it as pure fantasy and, and you won't hear too many preachers, adult preachers, really talking about the veracity of the portion on Noah uh, because it's relegated to a, a more of a children's teaching in Sunday school. And by the way, the most authoritative book that you can find on this subject is probably one of those little golden books about Noah's Ark, you know, the little boat thing with the giraffe sticking his head out of the thing and, and uh, the little ramp and all that. Well, one of the things I did in my presentation was that it's not the design of the ark. That's not what the Bible calls for. And by the way, that wouldn't have worked. It wasn't a boat. It was a box. And furthermore, the door was way up above, and the window was up on top, and a bunch of other kinds of things to explain how uh, the design is actually called out by the scripture. Um, anyways, I made this presentation. They loved the presentation uh, at this little chapter dinner that I did, and the word spread back and got back to, again, my boss's boss's boss. You know, um, Jerry Starr, who's the international president, he hears from several people about it. So he calls me up and asks me to fly out to California uh, to go into the video studio and make the exact same presentation again. And they want to put it on videotape because it's a good example of what logistics engineers do. And he wanted to then spread this tape all over the world to all of our professional society as, you know, to, as an example of what um, uh, loggy engineers do. 
and how they do their job. Well, as a result of going out and doing that, that it's amazing. It opened all kinds of doors to me. All of a sudden, there's lots of other uh, highly professional people uh, in my, my company and in other companies uh, that happen to see this presentation uh, who are very strong believers, but these are scientific people. In fact, one of the gentlemen I got to meet was a, a man by the name of Dr. Curtis Lee, who was considered to be a national asset. He was the top expert on tactical nuclear weapons in the United States. And so he ends up introducing himself to me, and I met some astrophysicists and some other very prestigious, uh, very uh, well-educated people who were the top of the class of engineering. And they were utterly fascinated about how I had taken all of these abstract things in the Bible and suddenly it made them very concrete, very understandable from an engineering perspective and had proved my point. In other words, they, they accepted my proof text, you know, of that. And one of the arguments that I'd made was if I can take the second portion of the Torah and prove to you the veracity and the truth of it, there's only one other story that's in front of it, and that would be creation. And so this was a, an apologetic argument to support the veracity of the scripture and that we should pay attention to it because these things can be examined and they can be, like us engineers do, it can be proved out on paper, um, you know, to substantiate what the story says. And it was in very sharp contrast to um, most even theologians today who don't give that much credence to the story. It's an ancient story they consider it to be archaic. Uh, they, surely it's not true. It's been fabricated. It's, you know, it's, a, it's more of a child's story than it is uh, something truthful that you can examine. And every time I turned around, I was presenting evidence from various experts about this is highly feasible and, and is very uh, and, and highly probable to, a, to, a, to the extent that is as probable as when we launch a spacecraft into space that we believe that it will work correctly based on the design parameters given by God um, in this portion. Now, I have that teaching um, available. It's called the Logistics of Noah's Ark. It's one of the products. And in fact, it was one of the very first products that Lion and Land Ministries we put together. And it came from way back a long time ago. It was, it's, it's ironic because in a strange sort of way, it was the first Torah portion the Lord ever had me study and to be able to teach. So here I am teaching the same Torah portion that me for historically, me personally, God used for my engineering background to, to help me to teach and to understand the veracity and the truth of the Torah. Since I could prove uh, to, the, to the agreement of my fellow engineers of the truth of this story, it followed that the other rest of the Torah must be true as well. Now, mind you, as I said to you, a lot of theologians don't necessarily believe in a lot of things that are in the book of Genesis. They don't take God at his word uh, from this. And I've always instructed that if you're going to study the Torah and truly get the benefit from it, you have to start believing what God says from Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. 
you have to start believing there. You can't pick some other time frame in the biblical story to say, well, you know, I'm going to believe at the part where Abraham starts, or I'll believe at the part where Moses starts, or I'll believe at the part where King David shows up, or I'll believe at the part where Yeshua shows up in the modern history or whatever. You know, you got, you got to pick a point at which you're going to start believing what God has said. Faith is believing what God has said, believing in the promises of God. And some of the original promises are given back here. In fact, in this Torah portion, God's actually going to establish a covenant with mankind. We call it the Noahic covenant. And as you recall, at the end of the flood, God will promise mankind that he will not destroy the world by a flood or water again. He poses the bow in the sky, the rainbow, as a sign of the covenant, the promise that he will not judge the world by water uh, again. So we don't all have to go out and build our portable arcs, you know, in case. You know, nobody has to build an ark again um, because of the promise of God. So with that as kind of an intro that my personal involvement in, let's examine some more of the detail of what we get in the story about Noah because it does describe um, certain things um, that we should take note of today. The uh, beginning at chapter 6, well, let me read to you for sure verse 32 of chapter 5. It says, And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we're going to start with this, and by the way, that's a very important number. We're going to start the age of Noah's at 500 because later on it's going to say that the flood came when Noah was 600 years old. So what we're describing here is a 100-year event that will lead to the flood. Now, what time frame do we think this is in the history of the world? In other words, the biblical history of the world. We believe this is in the order of uh, some 1,800 years after the creation story. So that Genesis 1 passage leading us up to here, there's really almost 2,000 years has gone by. You know, in the, in the, you know, if you remember, you go back and it's the story of Cain and Abel and who begat who, who begat who, who begat who, you know, and it gives all this lineage from Adam all the way up to Noah, many generations, and that was the number of years that were involved. We don't get any other detail other than to link Adam to Noah. And so it says Noah now at this point is 500 years old when this begins the process. Let me also... Uh, say to you that in the first portion and in this portion, we have men who are described with very long ages. But today, um, you know, the Bible and and David coined this phrase. He said, the life of the average man is three score and 10 or 70 years. But if he lives four score, he lives to the age of 80, he's had a long and full life. And you don't hear of very many people getting past 100 years old. Um, and so the lifespan of us in, in our generations today are considerably shorter than what was in the uh, pre-flood days. Why is that? Well, there's a very simple explanation. The medical community has already come up with this. Obviously, in the pre-flood days, we did not have direct radiation from the sun making its way down through the atmosphere to where mankind was. Uh, 
And it's radiation from the sun that triggers the aging process in a human being. And we know that because they'd never seen rain or a rainbow. The, the Bible says that the way the earth was watered was springs and a mist would come up in the air. And it appears that there was some sort of terrarium effect. That, that the atmosphere was somehow sealed where that the sun would light on it, but, but the radiation was absorbed in the atmosphere. Um, and, and, but the light would make its way through. The photons would make their way through so that the plants would grow and things like that. But the, the harmful radiation was being absorbed in the atmosphere, not by people. But as soon as those clouds are gone, the rain has come from the flood, man suddenly comes out, and all of a sudden you can gra draw a graph. You can do all the ages of the patriarchs down, and you suddenly discover there's this declining age uh, of men to where you get down to where Abraham, he lived to be 175 years old. And Jacob, you know, he lived to be a little bit less than that. And you get down to King David in his time where he makes the statement, the average man lives to be 70 years, possibly 80 years if he has a long life. And it's a fact that the direct radiation from the sun triggers the aging process. Uh, some have even speculated that the appendix that we have, you know, which doesn't seem to do anything for us except get infected once in a while, we have to have an appendectomy, may have been an organ that have, may have been helpful in the regenerative qualities of uh, the cell tissue in our body, but that it's become non-functional as a result of the radiation from the sun. Uh, so there are medical uh, explanations and hypotheses as to how is that possible that mankind used to live. In fact, I've read articles from doctors that if you could get your appendix working and you didn't come into contact with radiation in the sun, that you could live nearly a thousand years. Well, guess what? That's exactly the way the, the Bible describes people living even up into their 900 years. Adam lived to be 930 years old. And if you recall, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day, Adam surely did die in the day that he ate of the tree. He potentially could have lived beyond a thousand years, but he died in that first 1,000 year day. Um, in the course of that's how that particular scripture fits into it. So here's, Ad, here's Noah, he's 500 years old, and thus begins our story. Chapter 6, now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and by the way, we've had 1,800 years of mankind reproducing, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, they took wives from themselves, whomever they chose. And essentially what this verse is saying is that there was a major cultural issue that was going on in Noah's day. The cultural issue that was going on was some sort of disturbance having to do with God's definition of marriage. When God put Adam and Eve together, remember, they, he chose and brought her to him. It was the Heavenly Father, you know, giving a bride to him. And the traditions of marriage is the fathers involved with the, the bride, you know, being given to the young man and things like that. Something happened where that stopped happening. 
And so it says that marriage, whomever they chose. Does that sound similar to what's going on today in marriage? Yeah, as a matter of fact. In fact, whomever they chose, they, they're not even getting the gender right. Whomever they choose. Well, this is a characteristic of why God said the world needed to get judged. And we have the same characteristics going on today. Let me go ahead and give you the punchline of my teaching of Noah. The Messiah has clearly said that the end of the ages will be like the days of Noah before the flood. And that the same issues in the world will be the same issues that brought about God's judgment of the whole world by water. Only this time he's promised I won't judge you by water. This time I'm going to judge you by fire. So we're seeing the understanding the story of Noah is to understand what are the key characteristics of the world, of mankind uh, in our day. Do they match the world that was going on in Noah's day? And if so, that should be a warning to us that we're approaching the end of the age when God's judgment will come upon the whole world. And I remind everybody that God has already proved that he's willing to judge the whole world. He's already done it once before. So this business of, well, God wouldn't judge the whole world is sheer nonsense. It's because you're not listening to the story of Noah and you're not paying attention to what God has said happened before. So with that said, let us proceed forward. Verse 3, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. He also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Now, the most common teaching on this verse is, well, Noah built the ark in 120 years. You know, that's what God was saying. God was saying, hey, I'm, not, I'm talking about the world today, and I'm not going to put up with the world anymore. And uh, in uh, 120 years, I'm ending this whole thing. Well, that can't be correct. Why? Because Noah got in the ark when he was 600 years old. So there was only 100 years. So what is this 120 years that we're talking about here? Well, one answer could be this, that as we've come down to the length of days now of the average man, it's very rare, I mean really rare, that you hear of any human being living to the age of 120 years. I've heard there might be one or two and then there's some argument as to whether or not they really were that old because it was, it was so far back, they're not sure they were doing the, the count correctly. So one explanation of this was he's saying that I won't allow any man, you know, to, to, to live that length. I'll put up with that. But there may be another explanation here that actually is a much more broader explanation of God's overall plan for the world. And it has to do with the counting of the Jubilee years, the years of release, the years that model and picture God's kingdom. Now, we know what God wants to do. God wants to establish his kingdom. He wants all of us to be saved, be part of the kingdom. But we're going through this process of what's going on in the earth today, mortals, the disruption that came to the creation because of Hasatan, sin, 
and destruction and so forth and we're and God's having worked the work of redemption and restoration for all of the creation that he made and so he may be speaking much more on a grander scale a macro definition of that this is my limit this is how far I'm willing to go and if that be so then a jubilee year which is every 50 years if you take 50 times 120, it comes up to the number 6,000. Well, what is 6,000 to us in the grand scheme of things of biblical history? It, that's the end of the ages. That is six days. One day is 1,000 years, 1,000 years is one day. Like the creation story, we have six days of labor, and on the Sabbath... And we know the millennial kingdom is to be one day, the last day, and it's to be a thousand years long, which would be a Sabbath of millennia. Then the transition from the end of the 6,000 years, the beginning of the first year of the 7,000 year cycle would be the end of the ages. And that seems to track with the whole greater prophecies we feel of the day of the Lord when he brings judgment at the end of the ages. So his stri this statement may, in fact, be, this is my overall picture of everything going on the earth. I will not strive with man more than 100 jubilees, and we will bring this whole thing to a conclusion and a final judgment in the biblical year 6,000. So take your pick. Um, it certainly is not the number of days that was used in the building of the ark. It is a future prophecy. It has something more to do with how God will deal with mankind. So I'll leave it at, at that for the moment. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. And when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Now, some have suggested these were aliens. That is absolutely false. You get anybody tells you, hey, aliens came to the earth. Is absolutely false. I can tell you why the Bible says so. Because all men originate from Adam. And Adam was made from the dust and the dirt of the earth. He didn't come in a comet. His elements didn't come in an asteroid that struck the earth and some life-giving element came from space. No, God said he took the elements of the earth, he formed the man, and then he breathed life into him. This God breathed life into him, not an alien. So this business about, well, some comet came to the earth and it carried the right amino acids and it created life is a bunch of hucky-pucky, okay? <laughs> And um, it just makes for selling commercials on Nova, but it's not anywhere near the truth uh, to it. Now, the question is these Nephilim. Who in the world are the Nephilim? It doesn't really tell us um, about them. There's only one more mention of them. There's a mention to them made when the spies went into the, the promised land and they came back and they were talking about there were giants in the land. There were big, huge men. And they th thought they'd seen the Nephilim. Now, there is some evidence that there have been prior humans that are of, of immense size. Um, down in Africa, there are tribes that, are, that all the men are of incredible size. They all now play in the NBA. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, these seven-foot guys, you know, and so forth. And it may be a reference to their physical stamina, their physical size. But let me just tell you something. This is a known fact. 
if you're a very large, big man, a very large, you don't live that long. Uh, because the heart that you've got basically is the same heart everybody else has got. The internal organs are the same as everybody else got. So if you're a big guy, uh, most big guys die. Die young. Uh, so, but the, I think what the Nephilim really is speaking in, because it summarizes and gives it men of renown. Um, in our world today, the modern world today, you can travel anywhere in the world, and if, and if somebody asks you, well, where are you from, if you say you're an American, in this world that we live in today, we are men of renown. In other nations, to say that you're an American, it means that you, are, you come from a very rich country. You come from a very powerful country. You come from a very powerful people. And American soldiers, as compared to other soldiers in the world, I'm, I'm not just trying to, you know, salute the flag and, and um, you know, play, play the band here. I'm trying to tell you that in the world that we live today, Americans are men of renown in the world that we live today. And it, it's describing in that world there was a group of people called the Nephilim, and they were the men of renown. They were very, they either had wealth, they had technology, they had skill, they had size, they had strength, they were probably good fighters, warriors. Um, they were very capable of men. And it was speaking of and defining the world in that time. Now, Noah is not one of these men, nor is his family one of them, but there are those men that are in the world today. So what's that telling us? It says that the world in Noah's day was highly developed, that there were different societies and classes of people that had inhabited and had gone and built things and, and, and lived. For Noah to build the ark that he built, with the technology that the ark would have had in primitive times, um, the world that Noah lived in was highly skilled. They had the ability to build cities. In fact, the ev archaeological evidences found in the city of Ur, where Abraham came from, they had plumbing, public plumbing in that city, ancient city. They had built viaducts and, and things to handle sewage and, and water distribution and so forth. Well, those same technologies would have been needed by Noah on the ark. They had to process latrine stuff and they had to process, distribute water and so forth and food to feed the animals. And so those technologies did exist in the pre-flood um, uh, world. And a lot of people uh, don't give credit to the ancients that they had that. Which, by the way, uh, is another testimony to us that just because mankind gets more technology, it doesn't mean that they become better as human beings. In fact, the evidence is to the opposite. That the more technology they get, the more of the knowledge of the good and of the tree of good and evil, it, it doesn't necessarily lead them toward the good. It also can open doors to more evil. And we certainly know that to be true in the world that we live in today. The technological advances that uh, the world has experienced, even in my generation, you can see 
the principle of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's both good and evil that comes from every one of these technological advances. Um, in the case of a cell phone, let's just take that. That's the most common thing here. From a security standpoint, it is a tremendous advantage in terms of being in contact with your family and being safe, and it's now an integral part of almost every family of keeping track of children, the, you know, the husband knowing where the wife is, the wife knowing where the husband is, because you've got this instant cell phone on it. And the evil, obviously, is the Pokemon game where you run around and act like an idiot, you know, with this stupid game, okay? Uh, in every case, a technology breakthrough has both good and evil. Take the case of nuclear advances. On the evil, we have nuclear weapons. On the good, we have nuclear power plants. So it's just incredible um, how that has transformed. Those are examples. And so the world that was before the flood, we hear all these evidences that's describing it. Verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a terrible verse. This is a commentary on, on man. And it's saying that the world where Noah was at, everybody was corrupted. Kind of reminds me of the American political system at the moment. Everything is corrupted. You know, there's nothing socially redeeming, no value whatsoever. It's all, you know, poison. Verse 6, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And believe you me, if you make God sorry and you make him grieve, it is not a good thing you have done. It is not good at all. And that's what the Lord is getting ready to do with the world today. I can assure you that God is sorry for the world that we live in today, and he is grieving for what he sees going on in the world today. Verse 7, And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, from man to the animals, to the creeping things, to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. This is an incredible and wonderful verse. Let me uh, give you a more theological reference to this verse. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I want, let's get something straight right from the beginning. Noah is going to be saved by God. Is Noah going to be saved because of his obedience? No. Noah is going to be saved by the grace of God. And the first salvation story that we read in Scripture is about God's grace in saving mankind. That principle never changes in the Scripture. And by the way, we're reading from the Torah. So this business that Christians are running around saying, well, people used to get saved by keeping the Torah. Noah didn't have the Torah, and he didn't get saved by keeping the Torah. Noah was saved by the grace of God, like Moses was, like Abraham was, like everybody has always been. So this idea that Yeshua would come and we'd be saved by the grace of God, and that's somehow different than what God has been doing in the past, I won't use the technical term, but it's wrong. It's just wrong. That is, God says from the very beginning that it's by grace. 
Uh, verse 9, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. The, uh, this expression that Noah walked with God, in next uh, Shabbat's portion, we're going to hear about Abraham. We're going to be introduced to Abraham. And one of the things that's going to say about Abram and Abraham is that he walked before God. Whereas this one says Noah walked with God. So what's, what's, what's the difference here? It has to do with a certain level of, shall we say, spiritual maturity. Uh, when a father has a very young son, a young boy, um, and as I was taught by my mother, and, and I walked hand in hand, uh, my mom would, I would stick my finger, my one finger into her hand, and she would somehow lock that one finger inside of her hand and then hold my whole hand. And so it was possible that if I fell away, she still had a full grip on my hand and I couldn't stumble and fall because we were walking hand in hand and she had me by the hand. And I very emphatically remember that, that when you're a child, you, you, you stick your finger into their hand, they grasp your finger and then your hand goes all around them and that's how you hold a child's hand. It's called walking with the parent. And that's part of what is understood here about Noah walking with God. That literally uh, God's hand was, had a hold of Noah's hand and held him like a small child. So the idea of Abram, who will walk before God, is a different level of maturity because as this child grows... Well, then there comes a point where you, when you go and do an activity with them that you don't walk hand in hand anymore, the child is actually out in front. And the, the child is a walking with the parent, but it's out front. And what the child has learned to do at this point is when the parent wants them to go to the right, the parent just says, to the right now, or to the left, or stop, or go forward. And it's verbal instructions as opposed to physically, mechanically pulling the child or guiding the child by the hand. And so one of the things that is, um, is taught concerning here, when it talks of Noah being a righteous man and blameless in his time and that he walked with God, that spiritually he walked kind of as a child. And by the way, when we see children, you know, we would consider children to be innocent, right? We would consider them to have a, a kind of righteousness in and of themselves. We would consider them to be blameless in and of themselves. They're children. They, can only, they can't be held to an adult standard. They're held to the standard that they are there. And that's part of what's being expressed. The, the relationship that Noah had with God was one of like a small child in a parent's hand. And God regarded and remembered who Noah was and the world that he came out of and the, the world that he was mixed into and treated him spiritually as though he was a child and God's grace was covering him. But now when we get to Abram who will walk before the Lord, God will now expect Abram to have a little more intellect a little more knowledge, a little more understanding, and that he'll begin to exercise his will in following and obeying God, and he'll be at a slightly different standard. Now, 
The reason I mention that is because since the Torah is the teaching, these are the instructions in righteousness, um, and instructions in on we're all learning how to make good judgments. This portion, Noah, tells us a little bit about our earliest um, salvation experience, our earliest relationships with God. In our earliest relationships with God, the number one subject that we're concerned about is getting saved. Noah wanted to, wanted to avoid the punishment of God, the judgment upon the whole world by flood. And so he's just looking for simple answers, like, what do I got to do? And God's saying, well, you're going to build this, and you're going to stay in this, and then I'm going to take care of you. Um, and the person then walks hand in hand with God. And the key issue at that point is to position yourself to be where God wants you to be, and God to sustain you and help you. But there comes a point in our spiritual maturity that we're supposed to grow up and become descendants of Abraham in which that we each one walk before God, that we learn like our father did to hear the instruction of God and to follow the instruction because we're using our will and conforming our will to the will of God. Whereas Noah was literally forced to do what he did. He was in God's hand. God literally picked him up. And by the way, when we get into the story about Noah's ark, while Noah and his family may have built the ark, it says that God closed the door. That he did not close the door. God closed the door. So he didn't even know how to complete the task, but God knew how to complete it. But he got him to do the things that, that uh, the Lord told him to do. And it wasn't that he was saved by obeying the Lord. He was saved by the grace of God. And by the way, young believers, they're saved by the grace of God not because they obey any particular set of instructions. And part of our maturing is to grow through that, understand that, learn real cause and effect spiritually about God's gift of salvation and eternal life, not based on... But as we mature, then we're supposed to learn to follow instructions and to be obedient. But it doesn't have to do with our salvation. It has to do with living. It has to do with maturing. And it has to do with being responsible. Uh, you know, for yourself, uh, you know, before the Lord. So as the story goes on, uh, Noah is going to build this ark, and uh, he and his sons, and they, it tells the materials, and the rest of chapter 6, it specifies a lot of detail about the ark. There were three decks uh, to it, uh, that it was a certain length and a certain width and a certain height, and that he was ordered to then bring animals into it. It wasn't just two-by-two two animals. The scripture goes on to say that the unclean animals came in two-by-two, two, but the clean animals came in by sevens. Now, some say it was seven pairs of animals, whereas some say it was just seven animals. It was three pairs with an extra. Now, I tend to favor the latter by sevens, meaning three pair and an extra. Here's my reason for it. Um, if you take the entire animal kingdom world today and you total up the number of animals that are in the world today and you do a comparison between the clean animals that exist in the world today compared to the unclean animals that exist in the world today, two-thirds of all animals in the world today are clean animals. 
that ratio percentage works out to match by sevens better than seven pairs. That tracks with that number. When Noah ends the flood and he gets out of the ark, one of the first things he does is he builds an altar to the Lord and he takes one of each clean animal and slays them and offers them as a sacrifice to the Lord. One of each clean animal. So that extra animal, that seventh one, which by the way has a kind of a spiritual significance number to it, turns out to be the perfect gift of thanksgiving once Noah and his family and the creation of the animal kingdom has been saved. So this odd animal suddenly becomes the gift to the Lord on the altar that Noah builds afterwards. Uh, one of the obvious things also is that before the flood, man really didn't eat meat that he ate of vegetable material, plants. But after the flood, he's directed by God specifically now to eat meat. And so we eat meat today um, as a result of the story of the flood, the conclusion from the flood. Um, and some have suggested that the eating of meat was essential because we now have the direct radiation of the sun. It helps to deal with that, maintain strength and things like that. Um, but, there, but it also, you, you know, we also have people who are vegans, vegetarians, and so forth. They don't eat any of the meat product. Some still hold to that. If you're holding to the way God created the original creation, you know, back, you know, before the flood, that was the diet of mankind, you know, was vegetarianism. And so that's the reason why the Bible doesn't describe it as being anything wrong or in error uh, to it. The, the air that only could come from it is somebody eating meat, insisting that everybody has to eat meat, or somebody who doesn't eat meat, insisting that everybody can't eat meat, which is nonsense. You know, the Bible clearly gives you the choice, um, you know, and that comes from this Torah portion um, as well. So Noah gets through, um, builds the ark, loads up with the ark, God closes the door, and he goes through the flood experience. 40 days and 40 nights of rain, but here's what it says. It says the flood didn't peak until 150 days because there was also underground water that was coming up to the surface. Apparently, there was a tremendous volume of water in the earth because of the opening of the heavens and the springs came forward. The, the flooding was all massive forms of water. Uh, that uh, came up to the surface of the earth to where the earth was basically covered uh, in the uh, flood. And Noah's ark will come to rest on uh, Mount Ararat, what we understand to be Mount Ararat. And then he continues to stay in the ark for some time. Now, I want to give you one interesting fact before I get there. Um, and it has to do with um, when, the, when the flood waters peak, let me see if I can find you um, exactly where that says that. Here we go. Um, verse 20 of chapter 7, the water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. 
Now, that's a very intriguing verse. Let me tell you why. How did Noah know that? Some angel tell him that? God mentioned, hey, by the way, uh, let me tell you how deep the water is out there. No. I think that Noah had the ability to climb up through the window and up onto the surface of the top of the roof of the ark. And I think that he was able to be able to see around him that the world was covered with water. And he was aware of that. But I also think there's one other thing. I think the ark at some point scraped over the top of a mountain. May have almost run aground at the top of a mountain. And he then knew how deep was the water over the top of that mountain that they scraped over because... If you do a weight capacity analysis, on, and by the way, we did this in this, this logistics engineering, we determined how much water would the ark have displaced when it's fully loaded. How, how would it have sat in the, floated in the water? It would have floated perfectly at 50%. That the ark would have gone into, set into the water about 22 feet that the draft of the ark would have been 22 feet into the water. And so that the platform, the ark, would have been half in the water and half out of the water, which, by the way, is the most stable floating pat platform you can build. A six-to-one beam ratio is the most stable. Floating halfway in the water is the most stable hydraulic platform you can build. And the ark turned out to be the most perfect floating platform that has ever been built. Matter of fact, they use those specifications to build large ships with. How did they know that? Well, because uh, it says 15 cubits, because the, the ark was 30 cubits high. So if they scraped over and the water line is halfway up the ark, then I know it's 15 cubits above the mountain because the water comes up halfway on the ark. And if the bottom is scraping over the top of a mountain, hitting something down below at the hull, uh, then the water's up halfway, then I know how deep the water is over the top, top of mountain. So that's how he's able to record for us that the water rose to 15 cubits above, you know, the highest of mountains, because he may have run over something, bumped into it while he was on his floating journey uh, for it. Another little tidbit of fact that proves the story a little piece of information that, from an engineering perspective, is a clue as to what is the truth uh, about its design and how it's set. Now, we could take the structure of the materials and we could load up, uh, get, estimate the weight of the animals. We could figure out what the weight on paper was, but how do we confirm that it sets 50% in? The biblical story confirms it for us. And so the biblical story is completely consistent with the design parameters that were able to be determined for the ark as well. So he goes on further, and uh, the ark comes to a rest finally, but Noah and the animals don't leave. They continue to remain there. And in fact, you hear the story of the raven going out, you hear the story of the dove going out a couple of times, and then they continue to wait, even wait for the ground to dry. And then God finally says, okay, it's time to leave the ark now. But if you recall, the door 
to the ark was elevated in the ark. It was up on the upper third deck. He probably built a mound, and that door was like a ramp, like a, like a bridge into it. The animals all loaded in, so they loaded at the top and went down. You don't want to load animals from the bottom and try to get them to go up. You load them from the top and go down to bring everything on. And that's the reason why God had to close that door, that, that thing like a bridge, like a drawbridge. You know, it took God to close that, close that door. And by the way, let me go ahead. I'm, this is my expertise coming from the United States Navy. If you have a door in a ship, you want it above the waterline. Just take my word on that. You don't want a door below the waterline, okay? You got leaking problems like you can't believe. So the door is well above the waterline. So that door is no longer effective when you want to uh, egress from the ark. When you want to leave the ark, you need some kind of doorway in the bottom of the ark. So Noah had to chop his way out of the ark. He had to create a door to get out of the ark and so forth. Well, in so doing, he compromised the structural integrity of the ark. And no longer is the stable, supporting, honeycombed pattern of a highly compartmentalized ship or box. And by compromising that, if there had been earthquakes and any shaking or movement of the um, ark, by the way, Mount Ararat is famous for having multiple earthquakes, then this would have snapped the ark structurally into two pieces. By the way, all accounts by those even in the modern day looking for Noah's ark say that the ark is broken into two major pieces. Uh, many years ago, uh, when the astronaut Jim Irwin came back from the Apollo 15 mission to the moon, he built an organization called the High Flight Foundation, and he was, he was a, a biblical student. He loved the Lord, and he got on a kick of trying to find archaeological things to prove the Bible. One of them was to search for Noah's Ark, astronaut Jim Irwin. And um, he took helicopter trips. He took other uh, archaeologists with him. He took other men with him. They were trying to find it. They were in the course of looking for it, getting ready for their expeditions, when I happened to meet um, Jim Irwin. How did I meet Jim Irwin? He heard about this logistics engineering analysis I had done on Noah's Ark. And so we had a chance to meet uh, for it, and I was the one who explained to him, the, Jim, the reason why you're going to find the ark in two pieces is because Noah chopped his way out of the ark, and he, he chopped out through the bottom to one of the sides, probably in the middle, and that's probably what compromised the structural integrity, because if he'd not done that, then the thing should have just slid down the mountain, but instead it broke and there's one piece at one elevation, another at another elevation, which is what the evidence suggests um, from those who've gone looking for the ark. Uh, so, again, more of the details that fit into the story, even for the modern, in our generation, of people looking for the Noah's ark. Um, I don't have it any longer, but for many years it was presented to me, and I did keep it for a while until the friend who gave it to me, requested it back, and I gave it back to him. I actually had a piece of Noah's Ark in my office. And when I would give the presentation on Noah's Ark, I would show him a piece 
of this gopher wood that's still preserved. And actually what it is, it's really white oak that was completely soaked with the bituminous material and, and hardened, and it was completely black. And these were some of the fragments, the pieces that other explorers had bring, brought back small pieces for testing and, uh, you know, that they had found a residue of the ark on Mount Ararat, and he, I had this one piece. And I, so when I would give the presentation on Noah's Ark, well, I'd give everybody a chance to actually hold a piece of it, you know, which was kind of cool uh, for it. I don't have it anymore. Uh, the brother asked for it back, and I, you know, gladly was able to give him it back. Uh, it, and I continued to teach the story of Noah's Ark. But um, in any case, um, Noah escapes from the ark, and the animals then leave, and Noah's family begins to disperse. Now, what follows uh, in the rest of our portion is it speaks to the covenant that God then made with Noah and with mankind as a result of this. And that's what takes us into chapter 9. And the definition of putting the bow or the rainbow into the cloud uh, as a sign. And, of course, we all know this, that the, the rainbow is caused by the sun being at your back, shining into water droplets in the atmosphere, of rain that's in the atmosphere. And it produces water, uh, produces a prismic effect. So you see the color spectrum in light. White light actually breaks out in different frequencies of light. And so you see the bow in the, in the sky from the prismic effect of light being fragmented out by the water droplets. Um, that can only happen by direct sunlight into a moist atmosphere. And you have to be at the right angle to be able to um, see it. And either you have to be in the morning uh, with the sun in the east looking toward the west, or you have to be in the evening with the sun in the west looking toward the east to even be able to view um, such a rainbow. Most of us usually view a rainbow in the afternoons or in the early evening, so we're usually looking toward the east with the sun setting in the west uh, for us to see it. And God then uses that and says, when you see that, you know, when mankind sees that, then you're to be reminded of the story of the Noah and the flood, and you're to be reminded that God has said, I will not judge the world by water again. Now, today, going back to the issues of the world that was before the flood, and how God saw that what man was doing was so terrible that he was sorry, and that he grieved, you know, for what he saw, and he brought about judgment upon the world. Well, the scripture goes on to say that uh, the same things will be happening at the end of the age. That God's going to become very sorry. He's going to grieve at what man time is going to become. I think one of the most powerful evidences that we have today that speaks to, in this generation specifically, as to why I think we're the last generation, we're the one that's going to be judged. This is the generation that's going to be judged by God, is that, that the world has taken the symbol of the rainbow, the spectrum of the multicolor. And culturally in society, we have now adapted that symbol to be the symbol for the entire homosexual community. 
They've taken God's symbol that it gave to mankind, and they are now flaunting their transgressions before God using his sign of his covenant with Noah. That's beyond blasphemy. You have got to be kidding me. And by the way, that speaks to absolutely how bizarre the world has become. So there's much to know and to learn from our portion about Noah. Uh, let me just share with you my conclusions from it. One, there's more than sufficient evidence in this Torah portion to prove the veracity and the truthfulness of the scripture. I did it to my own satisfaction by doing the analysis on the design of Noah's Ark. And by the way, the professional community that I was with agreed with my results. Other engineers and other PhDs and other scientific people said they agreed with my analysis. And I'm not coming from a spiritual standpoint. I'm coming at it from a critical engineering analysis. But even more so upon understanding the characteristics of what God describes the world that was before the flood, I find those same characteristics to be rampantly true in the world that I live in today. Therefore, I consider... Um, what I see amongst men in society is one of the evidences that we are at the end of the age, that we are the last generation. And therefore, we should be paying very close attention to references that Yeshua made to the story of Noah's Ark having to do with the end of days. Now, there's also a positive one that I should also tell you. Not only is there reference to the judgment, but there's a res reference to God's grace that was shown to Noah. Because Yeshua also goes in and says that in the same way that God's grace was given to Noah and to his family, his grace will be given to the believers in the last day to preserve them and get them through the next judgment too. So I look forward to that wonderful story. Uh, only this time, it's not an ark we have to build, it's a sukkah we have to set up. And uh, these are obviously waterproof sukkahs. No, 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 they're not. <laughs> you know? But the ark was. All right, let's pray. That's our portion for this week for Noah. Father, thank you for this Shabbat, and we thank you for the incredible story of Noah and the ark and how you dealt with mankind and saved Noah and his family by grace. We thank you for that, Lord. And we do look to this portion of giving, granting us wisdom and understanding for even for the days that we live in. And I thank you, Lord, for this story. And I thank you for your instruction so that we might benefit from it even to this day. Bless us now on this Sabbath, we ask in Yeshua's name. Amen.
והשם לך, לך, שלום. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.